This afternoon we'll be looking at the phrase from the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So in connection with that, we will be reading from James 1, the verses 1 to 18, which you'll be able to find on page 1386 of your pew Bible. James 1, the verses 1 to 18. The Word of God. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all, liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as the flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So far, the word of God. Let's now read question and answer 127 from the Heidelberg Catechism, which gives us a summary of Scripture on the sixth petition, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And you'll be able to find that on page 563 of your book of praise. What is the sixth petition? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That is, in ourselves we are so weak that we cannot stand even for a moment. Moreover, our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, do not cease to attack us. Will you, therefore, uphold and strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that in this spiritual war we may not go down to defeat, but always firmly resist our enemies, until we finally obtain the complete victory? Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, have you ever experienced confusion when you came to this petition of the Lord's Prayer? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. What do we understand by this? 
We understand that temptation is a real thing. It's something that we deal with every day. Parents are tempted to lose their temper with their children. Children are tempted to talk disrespectfully to their parents. Spouses are tempted to talk sharply to each other. And many of you probably even experienced these temptations as recently as getting ready for church this morning or this afternoon. And this is only a small cross-section of the myriads of temptations that we face each and every day. That being said, why then does Christ command us to ask God and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one? Most of us are familiar with the idea of the devil being the tempter. He showed this most obviously during the time that he tried to tempt Jesus. We read in the final temptation of Jesus Christ, this is the the third of three outright temptations that our Lord Jesus Christ faced. Again, the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Recognizing the power that Jesus Christ had, and having a small picture of the scope of his glory, the devil tried to get Jesus to take the easy route. One which would be under his rule, under his dominion, and under his sway. But Jesus knew that there was only one way in which he could get to his goal. He overcame temptation. He endured the cross, despising his shame to bring many sons to glory. And don't think that this was something that he did easily or lightly. If there was any other possible way, we read about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying, sweat filled with drops of blood rolling down him, saying, Father, if there is any way, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. If you think that it was possibly an easy temptation that he faced here. No, he overcame temptation. He endured the cross, despising his shame to bring many sons to glory. But where does this place us and this particular petition that we face? We recognize that Jesus fought the devil, but doesn't he say here about God, do not lead me into temptation? Does this mean that God is the one who tempts? First of all, we need to understand the phrasing that's used here, that Jesus Christ uses here. When the Bible speaks about God not leading us into temptation, the language that's used is very specific. What do I mean? Well, let's take a look. Where else do we find the connection between God and tempting? Where else in the Bible does it speak about God and tempting? 
Well, we only have to look as far as the passage that we just read in order for it to spring to mind. James 1 verse 13. We read there, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. Do you see the difference between the way James speaks about it and the way that Jesus speaks about it? The one speaks about leading into temptation and the other speaks about God tempting someone. Well, that's a question of semantics, you might say. Isn't God tempting either way? No, and this is actually an important distinction because it brings us to the very nature of God and the very reason for temptation. First of all, the nature of God. God himself is most holy, most perfectly holy and good. Article 1 of the Belgian Confession describes him as eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, immutable, infinite, almighty, perfectly wise, just, good, and the overflowing fountain of good. That's simply who he is. That's what makes up the core of his being. Once God is no longer any of those, if God had sin within himself, he would no longer be God. If God were to tempt someone, then he would become the author of sin. Because to tempt someone is to call evil good and good evil. That's exactly what the devil did in the garden when he tempted Adam and Eve with the forbidden fruit. He was calling rebellion against God and dethroning God in their lives as good. He was calling God's good and righteous command to them not to eat from the fruit of that tree evil. He was tempting them. And God is very explicit about this. We read in Isaiah 5, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those. Tempting someone is doing exactly that. It's calling what is bitter sweet. So what's the difference between what God does and what the devil does here? When we pray, do not lead us into temptation, we're praying that God would not lead us into situations where we might be tempted. And it's not simply comparing apples to oranges. It's a difference between seeing God as the author of sin and someone who uses sinful situations. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. God is sovereign, and we recognize that. But that also means he's in control of situations in which people sin as well. Sometimes God uses situations in which he allows people to sin in order to further display their sin to them and their need for him. In order to fully understand this, let's look at this in light of, first, the conscience, the law, and the light. Romans 1, written by the Apostle Paul, tells us that everyone, whether they know God or not, has some experience of God in creation. God, in creation, God reveals to all his eternal power and his divine nature. That's what we read in Romans 1. 
he imprints some small understanding of this on their conscience so that when they do what's right, they obey what you might call the law of conscience. Everyone has one of those. Everyone breaks the law that is found within themselves. Everyone goes against their own conscience at one point or another during their lives. You can dull your conscience so that your conscience doesn't speak up as loudly. But you do go against your conscience in order even to be able to do that. What Paul teaches us is that God has imprinted on mankind's conscience the ability to understand in some small way that they need him. Why? Because they know that they can't be held accountable to themselves. They know that they go against their own conscience, that small portion of the law that's written on their own lives, that's written on their own hearts. The conscience is for them like a dim light in a room which reveals to them that that room is a mess. That their life is a mess. The mess already existed. All the law of conscience did was bring it more clearly to their attention. With some people, God brings a brighter light to bear on their lives. And that's the light of law itself, the divine document that's handed down from heaven. Can the law save? Certainly not. If you are aware that you break the law of conscience, then you certainly know that you also break the law itself, the law of God. We don't serve God with the perfection that his law requires of us. And we recognize this every Sunday when we go through the law, reading it in the morning. That's the reason that we read the law in the morning, every Sunday. So that we can recognize that we don't love the Lord our God with all our hearts, all our souls, all our minds, just as he commands us to. We break that first and greatest commandment. And we break the second that's like it, loving our neighbor as ourselves. We don't do that perfectly. So if the law can't save, what's the purpose of the law then? Paul goes on to Romans 3, verse 19 to 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and that all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. That is declared righteous. By obeying the law, no flesh will be declared righteous because everybody breaks the law at one point or another. In his sight. For by the law is knowledge of sin. The point of the law is not that you have this code that you can follow perfectly in order to be righteous before God. It's to reveal more clearly the sin that's in your life. You can deceive your conscience. You can wear down your conscience to the point where you accept things as okay that God would never say is okay. But the law is absolutely clear. The point of the law, therefore, is that every mouth may be stopped. Every reason for boasting is removed. Every single person who thinks they're okay comes to realize that they're not before God. Going back to that example of the messy room, those of you who are in life renewal probably recognize this example. Going back to the example of the messy room, 
the light just got brighter and it revealed more of the clutter. The law doesn't create the clutter, it just reveals the clutter that's there. So how does this tie into leading someone into temptation? We'll see this in how the light is applied to our daily lives. The law is ironclad, to be sure. It's perfectly clear that no one is righteous. But sometimes people deceive themselves into thinking that the things that the law says doesn't really apply to them. Not to say that they think they can get away with law-breaking, but rather they do things that do break the law, even if it's just in their hearts and their patterns of thought. And then they deceive themselves into thinking that they're innocent, that they merely bent the law. The light is brighter, they have the, law, the light of the law, but just because they've mostly cleaned their lives up, they think that the things that are on the edges or the stuff that they have a habit of doing doesn't really count. And it's in this situation that we get the question of leading into temptation. For this, we only need to think back as, as far as David's census of Israel and Judah in 2 Samuel 24. Israel had really flourished under, under the reign of David. They were doing magnificently. They had conquered one nation after another. And for most of it, they had relied on God. You may remember the words of the famous psalm. This was one which you might say rang as a, a motto throughout David's career as the king. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. For most of his reign, David very clearly expressed this in his life. But there was one thing in particular that God had commanded the people never to do. For most of you, you might immediately think back to the question of David and Bathsheba, but that's actually not the thing that is brought to the fore here in 2 Samuel 24. Rather, it was to take a census. What was the purpose of a census in the ancient world? In some cases, it was for tax reasons, but in this case in particular, it was not. It was to number the fighting men. God commanded them not to number the fighting men because the moment that they did that, they were proving that they were relying on their own strength and their own numbers to weigh the odds against their neighbors. They were weighing their own strength against God's command to conquer the land instead of trusting God to fight for them even if their numbers were small. And to take a census was the clearest possible example that they could take of their switch from reliance on God to reliance on self. Reliance on God. If you relied on God, you didn't need a census of fighting men. If you relied on God, you could be like Gideon. 300 men overthrow an army. This was a switch from reliance on God to reliance on the numbers of fighting men that they had in hand. Now we read in 1 Samuel 24 that the Lord provoked David to do this. The Lord provoked David against Israel to take this census. We read in 1 Chronicles 21 that the evil for this provocative decision had its origin in the devil himself. That's 1 Chronicles 21. The evil for this decision and the temptation had its origin in the devil himself. 
But why would the Lord allow the devil to move against David in order to provoke him to such a grievous sin? Why would the Lord facilitate such a move? Well, in this case, God wasn't placing evil in David's life. God was bringing his sin to light. The sin that David committed was representative, representative of the national wickedness of Israel. They had begun to take personal pride in their accomplishments, attributing it to their power. It was representative of the self-reliance that was already in their hearts. The fact that it was in their hearts was enough to set the Lord burning in anger against them. But the people themselves were clueless. It's not that they didn't understand that they had this feeling in their hearts or the fact that they knew that to take a sentence as a public revelation of this sentiment would probably anger God. Rather, they were clueless of the gravity of their sin. They thought, as we all too often do about our own thought life, it's not a big deal. So when the command to take a census went out, nothing was done to stop it. God let David be tempted. The devil did the tempting, but God was the one who facilitated everything, that David and the nation might bring their sin against him to light. That David might come to realize the gravity of his sin and that he might come to God in repentance, recognizing the seriousness and the depth of his sin. Brothers and sisters, many of you who are here today take part in the Lord's Supper. But among you, there are those, whether taking part or not, who might be wondering why God allowed you to sin in a particular way. And... In reading this petition, you might be asking yourself the question, did God tempt me? In James 1, we read, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. It is impossible for God to be tempted, as he is first of all perfectly good, and secondly, sovereignly in control of all things. There is nothing that could possibly tempt him. Because he already has all things. There is nothing for him to gain by tempting. But he does allow people to be tempted. He does allow them to come into situations in which they'll be tempted. And he does that to open our eyes. As James 1 continues, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when it is full grown, brings forth death. Each one is led astray by his own desires. For David and for the people of Israel, it was their own desires in their heart that led them astray. It was their own desires. God didn't place sin in his heart. He was drawn away by his own desires and enticed. The thing is for David that his sin never began with the census. You might be sitting here thinking about that sin that you committed 
But what you perhaps aren't realizing is that it never began with that sin, that action. That action is simply what brought the sin to light. The sin already began in your own heart. Just as the conscience acts as a light for sin that's already there, just as the law acts as a light for sin that's already there, so sometimes when God allows action that's based on temptation to which we were led, He does this in order to give us a light, a warning light, a clarion call of deeply, deeply embedded sin in our lives. Your sin is merely a symptom of a much bigger problem, the problem that's rooted deep in your heart, an attitude that if left unexamined, left in a state of unconcern, would otherwise cause such a deep rift between you and God that you would, if it were possible, even fall from grace. Thank the Lord that it's not. So in light of that, what is the sixth petition all about? The catechism sums it up very well. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That is, in ourselves we are so weak that we cannot stand even for a moment. Moreover, our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, do not cease to attack us. Will you therefore uphold and strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that in this spiritual war we may not go down in defeat, but may always firmly resist our enemies until we finally obtain the complete victory. We're saying, God, we admit that we're so weak, that we cannot stand even for a moment. If you were to allow us to be exposed to a situation in an area that we haven't surrendered to you, an area of our lives that we haven't given over to you, we wouldn't be able to stand for a moment. We know that in our own strength we can't possibly stand. The devil, the world, and even our own flesh conspire together against us. How can we stand in the face of that all by ourselves? Strip us of our arrogance in which we see ourselves as righteous before you of our own accord. And please help us. That's the confession that you're making today as you draw near to the Lord's Supper with this petition on your lips. You're brought to say, Lord, please don't ever let me come into a situation where it's necessary for me to need to be brought into temptation to realize the full depth of my sin and my need to come to you in repentance and faith. Rather, work in us by your Holy Spirit. Uphold and strengthen us by his power. Strengthen our faith. Make us watchful so that we may never go down in defeat, not even in our thought lives, tear out the root of sin by the power of your spirit in every last aspect of our lives. Let us firmly resist our enemies until we finally obtain the complete victory, a victory that's only found through the death of your son on the cross. Looking back on the sin in your life, brothers and sisters, Look on it not as a hopeless failure. Look on it rather as a reason to drive you to Christ. Let the weight of your sin not crush you. Rather, let it press you down until you fall to your knees at the foot of the cross. 
and be aware of this beautiful reality that's placed before you today as you can find it in the words of Belgian Confession, Article 17. We believe that when he saw that man had thus plunged himself into physical and spiritual death and made himself completely miserable, our gracious God in his marvelous wisdom and goodness set out to seek man as he trembling fled before him. He comforted him with the promise that he would give him his son, born of woman, to crush the head of the serpent and make man blessed. This Lord's Supper is God once again in his marvelous wisdom and goodness setting out to seek you. When you, due to your sin, trembling, fled before him. This is the comfort that you receive with the bread and wine. The promise that God would give you his son, born of woman, to crush the head of the serpent and to make you blessed. To make you justified. To declare you righteous before him. If you look to him, you need no longer fear being led into temptation. Surrender every aspect of your lives over him over to him, and where you cannot, pray to him that you would be able to. Pray to him that he would not lead you into temptation, but that he would deliver you from the evil in your life. If you look to him, you no longer need to fear being led into temptation, but you will forever enjoy being delivered from the evil one, being delivered from evil, being delivered from yourself being delivered from sin itself, and reigning victoriously with God in glory. Amen.